Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. So this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about this theory that I recently learned about. It's called the theory of learned helplessness. And the theory of learned helplessness is defined as this. It's a condition in which a person suffers from a sense of powerlessness arising from a persistent failure to succeed. Now let me explain this a little bit. So in the 1960s, a psychologist who wanted to learn a little bit more about depression decided to do some experiments. So he took some dogs and he put them into three different groups. The dogs that were placed in group one were put in a harness and then they were simply just released. The dogs in groups two and groups three were yoked together so that everything that the dogs in group two felt, the dogs in group three also felt. Now the only difference was that the dogs in group two had a button available to them on the floor that they could put their paw on to stop the stimulus. So the psychologist would send an electric shock and the dogs in group two could step on this button and make the shock stop but the dogs in group three were seemingly unaware of this help that was available to them. They just thought that the shock came and went at random. Now the second part of this experiment, and I'll show you a picture, is he took the same group of dogs and he put them in this large rectangular box with a half wall in the middle of the box. And on one side of the box, he would send another electric shock. Now what's interesting is the dogs in groups one and two, the ones that were released and the ones that had the button in the first part of the experiment, they quickly learned in the second part of the experiment to jump over the wall to the other side of the box where there was no shock. But the dogs in group three that had no help available to them in the first part of the experiment, they laid down and they cowered and they accepted the shock that they were experiencing. Now in the 1970s, more research was done on this, and this time it was done with humans and loud sounds in a room, and instead of a button, there was a lever in the room. And the same thing was shown, that those who had help made available to them in the first part of the experiment looked for that help in the second part of the experiment. But those who had no help in the first part of the experiment just accepted their circumstances and didn't look for it in the same part, in the second part of the experiment. What's really interesting about these studies is that neuroscience and studies of the brain have actually proven that the opposite of learned helplessness is true. It's actually the theory of learned helpfulness. You see, the brain's default state believes that it has no control. The brain's default is to believe that no help is available to it and oftentimes just lays down and cowers and accepts its situation. In the book of John, Jesus is getting ready to leave earth, and he's getting his disciples ready, and so he tells them that he's going to send them his spirit to be with them. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send you my spirit. I will send you an advocate. I will send you my helper to be with you always. You will not be as orphans. He tells them that he will send them a helper. He will send them his spirit to live and dwell with them, with us always. And now, I don't know about you, but this past week and this last year and really just life in general, I realized that I need to live my life aware of the presence of God at all times. 
I'm convinced that in this season and in all seasons, in this phase and in all phases, that we need to be people who are aware of the Holy Spirit, that he's the help that we need in any and all circumstances. Now, when we talk about the presence of God, we talk about it in two ways. We talk about the omnipresence of God. This is the idea that the presence of God is with us always, everywhere, at all times. And then we talk about the manifest presence of God. And the manifest presence of God is when we actually recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit who makes God known to us in the room. I've heard many of you say you don't understand why, but when you come to church on a Sunday and you hear the worship or you hear Pastor Mike, you start to cry. This is often the body's response to the presence of God in the room. The word manifest means clear or obvious. So friends, we have a lever, we have a button, we have a half wall available to us at all times. But oftentimes we lay down and we cower and we accept our circumstances without realizing that help is available to us. We have access to the very presence of God, to the Holy Spirit in our lives. But often we don't access this presence of help in our lives. We remain, as neuroscience says, the default state, the brain's default state, and we lay down and cower as those in group three. So how do we become people? How do we become aware of the presence of the helper? Now, I'm gonna tell you this this morning that I might use Holy Spirit and I might use the word helper, but really in the original text of the Bible, they're interchangeable. So I just wanted to state that. This morning, I wanna introduce us to a woman who's found in the book of Mark. She's a woman who doesn't have a name. She's nameless. And we don't know much about her, but truthfully, I believe that her story shows us how to access the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I'm going to be reading this morning from Mark chapter 5. I will read it to you. No need to read with me. That's a mic thing. It says this, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, but was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease, and Jesus, perceiving in him that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, as I mentioned, as I've studied this passage, I have to tell you there's not a whole lot of backstory to this woman. We don't know a lot about her. What we know about her, we learn from the greater context of the book of Mark, as well as the accounts of this story that are also in Matthew and Luke, as well as just understanding history and the culture of the time. And I have to tell you this, that this last week, I've been reading a little bit about women in the history of the church, and I have to tell you this, that when a woman is mentioned in the Bible, 
and she has a speaking part, it's important, and we need to listen. You laugh, but it's true. <laughs> we also know that the book of Mark was written with a sense of urgency. The word immediately is used over 40 times in the original text, and Mark writes his words to convey that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one sent from God, and he came to serve. And we also can gain some understanding about this woman by understanding her story and the culture of the time. The text tells us that she's been bleeding for 12 years. So she probably started her menstrual cycle and never stopped for 12 years. This means that she was most likely unable to have children and therefore most likely not married. We can also uh, understand that she may have come from money. The text tells us that she spent all that she had. She tried many things, and yet instead of getting better, she only grew worse. So if she's come from money and she spent all that she had and she's not married and there's no children, there's probably some shame in her life as well and embarrassment. And now I've spent some time this week also uh, looking at the Levitical law and what it says about the menstrual cycle for women in biblical times. And what the text tells us in, in Levitical law is that women are considered to be unclean for seven days while they're menstruating. And not only that, but whatever they touch would then also be considered to be unclean for seven days. And there's a period of separation for seven days. But if the bleeding continues for longer than this seven-day period, the woman is actually then considered to be impure and sinful because now it's, just, it's not just an unclean issue, it's a sinful issue and an atonement would need to be made if it's past the seven-day period. And this has gone on for 12 years. The other interesting thing is that the Jewish, the Jewish understanding of blood, blood actually represents life. So when we read about blood in the Bible, it's a reference to life. And in addition to that, a woman's menstrual cycle was considered to be her seed. Just as males have a seed, this was considered to be the woman's seed. And so for 12 years, this woman's life and her ability to give life has been pouring out of her. She is certainly someone who is in need of a helper. Now, by the time we meet this woman in Mark, uh, Mark has already told us several accounts of miraculous encounters that Jesus has had as he's walked on the earth. We're only in chapter five, but by this point in the gospel, we as readers know that Jesus is moving. He's healing, he's casting out demons, he is demonstrating his authority and his ability to help and to serve. And so we come to chapter five and we find Jesus being bombarded by a crowd with people who have come to meet with him and hear from him, and we find this woman desperate and in need of a helper. The Passion Translation says this, now in the crowd that day was a woman who had suffered horribly from continual bleeding for 12 years. She had endured a great deal under the care of various doctors, yet in spite of spending all she had on their treatments, she was getting worse instead of better. When she heard about Jesus' healing power, she pushed through the crowd and came up from behind him and touched his prayer shawl. So the question is this, how do we become aware of the presence of the helper? How do we become people who live with our lives aware of his presence? We need to watch and we need to listen. Mark tells us that this woman has suffered horribly for 12 years. 
She'd tried everything that was available to her to start living her life, but instead of getting better, she's only gotten worse. Her very presence in the crowd that day shows us that she's someone who's learned how to watch and learned how to listen. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus's reputation is getting around. People are talking, stories are spreading, and she was watching and she was listening. As someone who's suffering alone, separated, not in community, it would have been tremendously easy for her to check out, to simply grin and bear her circumstances. But we find this woman listening and watching. Now we have to assume that with all the treatments that she's already tried, it would have been very easy to just give up and accept her circumstances. But she's watching and she's listening. She knows when and she knows where Jesus is going to show up. In order to become people who recognize and become aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we need to watch and we need to listen. Now, I'm not an athlete by any means, uh, but I have children who play sports, and so that means I have to at least pretend like I know a little bit about sports. And all my boys play baseball, but my oldest son plays a lot of baseball. And it's always remarkable to me when he gets up to bat because I would not want the pressure of standing there and having to decide what's a strike and what's a ball and when to swing and when not to swing. But he does it. And I've watched him. When he goes up to bat, he stands at the plate and he's already watched the pitcher. And he's already on the side, maybe taking some practice swings in stride with the pitcher, practicing and determining when it would be a good time to swing. And in addition to that, uh, he, he has to quiet down the sound of the crowd and listen only for the sound of his coach to make a determination in that moment when he should swing and when he should not swing. And it's really cute when the, when the pitcher changes because then the whole team from the dugout shouts, new pitcher! And then they all sit in the dugout and they talk to each other and they watch and they listen as they comment on the speed and the force. He has to get up at bat, quiet the sound of the crowd, listen to his inner voice and watch as the ball gets thrown to decide what his next move is. You see, the key to having a good swing is not just good baseball mechanics, it's not just knowing how to play baseball, it's actually the ability to watch and to listen when the ball is thrown to know when to make your move. In order to be people who are aware of the presence of the helper, we must watch and we must listen. Where is he moving? What is he doing? Where in your life is he working? Where in your town is he showing up and walking through? We listen as we worship and we listen as we tune our lives to the sound of his voice. Now it's interesting to me that we never learn of this woman's name. In all three gospel accounts, she is simply referred to as the woman with the issue of blood. What's even more interesting to me is that in both Matthew and Mark's account, it's noted that she had the faith that Jesus could heal her. Or in Mark's account, again from the Passion, says this, when she heard about Jesus' healing power, she pushed through the crowd and came up behind him and touched his prayer shawl. For she kept saying to herself, if I could even touch his clothes, I know I will be healed. As soon as her hand touched him, her bleeding immediately stopped. She knew it, for she could feel her body instantly healed of her disease. We know nothing of her family of origin, we know nothing of where she's really come from, not even her name, but we do know from the gospel accounts that she knew that Jesus could heal her. 
The ESV says this, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So how do we become aware of the presence of the helper? In order to do this, we must set our minds on him. We must set our thoughts on the truth of who he is. We need to set our minds on what we know to be true about our God. I listened last week to Rob Reamer when he talked about how he has many friends who are obsessed with their grandkids and they're constantly showing pictures. And we need to be people who become obsessed with Jesus and the truth of who he is. Now, research has shown that one of the secrets to losing weight, one of the tips and tricks, in addition to obviously eating well and exercise, is this. If you can get in your mind and imagine what it will be like and what it will feel like to be at your desired weight, it will actually help you and motivate you on towards your goal. This is a secret key to unlocking weight loss. Thinking I can lose weight because you've imagined and you've experienced what it will feel like will help to motivate you on towards your goal. Now on the flip side, the opposite of this is true. If you constantly think, constantly think I can never do this, I won't be able to do this, you're not gonna be very motivated to meet your goals. Similarly to this, studies on stress show that those who believe that their stress is harmful to their bodies have a 43% higher chance of dying from stress than those that don't believe stress plays any part on their health. Studies, researchers have shown this, stress in and of itself is not bad, but the belief that stress is bad is bad. What you think about matters. What rumbles around in your mind is important. This woman didn't have a name, but she had a motivation. She knew that Jesus could heal her. She knew that just one small touch from him was what she needed. She knew because she watched and she listened that he could help her. She could have easily stayed hidden in her illness and thought, what's the point? but she chose to believe that Jesus could heal her. We don't know her name, but we know her heart. And we know this because the gospel writers felt that this was important enough to keep it in the details of this encounter. Wanda Walborn in her book called The Spiritual Journey wrote this. The apostle Paul exhorted the Philippians, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, Think about such things. That's from Philippians 4, 8, 9. If thoughts are confined to these areas, there's no room for fear. Look how different our outlook is if we think about whatever is false, vulgar, wrong, impure, ugly, reprehensible, inferior, or degrading. Paul knew people's, ten Paul knew people's tendency to think negatively and had to tell them to think the opposite. In order to be people who recognize the presence of the helper, we must set our minds on him. We must think about him. There's an activeness to this woman's thought life. It's not just some simple mantra that she repeated over and over again. She didn't sit in her home and just say, well, I think Jesus will heal me. She allowed what she saw, what she heard, and what she thought about to carry her to go and not only meet Jesus, but talk to him. To recognize the presence of the helper, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, we must then take an action step. We must respond. The passion again says this, as soon as her hand touched him, her bleeding immediately stopped. For she knew it, 
She could feel her body instantly being healed of her disease. Jesus knew at once someone had touched him, for he felt the power that always surged around him had passed through him for someone to be healed. He turned and spoke to the crowd saying, who touched my clothes? His disciples, his disciples answered, what do you mean who touched you? Look at this huge crowd, they're all pressing up against you. But Jesus' eyes swept across the crowd looking for the one who had touched him for healing. When the woman who experienced this miracle realized what had happened to her, she came before him trembling with fear. She threw herself down at his feet saying, I was the one who touched you. And she told him her story of what had just happened. Then Jesus said to her, daughter, because you dared to believe your faith has healed you, go with peace in your heart and be free from your suffering. Now, I love this part of this story for so many reasons. But I love it because you can almost see the looks on the disciples' faces as Jesus is asking this question. We know from pre-COVID days that when crowds gathered and a celebrity was walking through, people don't often stand like this. They're grabbing and they're reaching for just one touch. I went to a Kirk Franklin concert once and I held out my hat for him and he grabbed it and he wore it on stage and it was amazing. <laughs> Folks are reaching and they're grabbing. They're looking for just one touch. And here's Jesus walking through this crowd and he suddenly stops dead in his tracks because he feels the power that was released from him. And then he turns and he says, who touched me? And this is the part that I think is so funny because his disciples are like, are you serious? You see this crowd? This unclean woman, this woman who was not supposed to be touching anyone or anything has made her way through the crowd. She's pushed her way through because she has the desire for just one small touch from Jesus. She's left the comfort of her home. It's not mentioned that she came with a close group of friends, but she goes, she's watched, she's listened, she's fixed her mind on him and she's responding no matter what. Now this, season, this scene is both beautiful and terrifying. Jesus is walking through the crowd and as I mentioned, people are grabbing and they're reaching, but he keeps walking. And now suddenly, when he feels the hand of this woman, he stops. Now can you just imagine for, the, for a second what this must have felt like for her? Her heart is probably racing. What has just happened? He was just moving. Why did he stop? More than that, she actually felt in her body that the bleeding has stopped. So her heart is pounding. She's thinking, why is he stopping? And then she hears him, who touched me? And in this moment, she's faced with the choice again. Does she hide? Does she go back to her hiding? She could easily just withdraw back into the crowd. But she responds again. And she says, it was me, I touched you. What were those moments like for her? No one in the crowd could have known what was going on in her mind. No one in the crowd could have known what was going on inside of her body. And she responds. And I imagine Jesus in this moment pausing in a moment of silence, his heart welling up with pride for his daughter as she has boldly and bravely responded to him. She's afraid and she's trembling, but she is not moved by her fear. She is determined. Jesus' words to her in the midst of this crowd are beautiful. 
and powerful and welcoming. Daughter, there's acceptance, there's inclusion, she belongs. Because you dared to believe, because you watched, because you listened, because you fixed your mind on me, your faith has healed you. Go and live your life in peace. Jesus had felt healing leave his body. It cost him something, a sacrifice of who he was. A part of him left his body and filled and healed her. In those moments, we recognize that this is why he came. He gladly gave of himself and he freely calls her daughter. He doesn't just want to meet her needs. He wants to know her and he wants her to know him. In order to become people who are aware of the presence of God, we must take action. We need to respond where we see, hear, and think he is moving. When we are willing to risk everything to do what Jesus is asking of us, we are met by his never-ending bank account of resources. A withdrawal was made that day by this woman, and she received even more than what she thought was possible. When we respond to the presence of Jesus, we are met by his never-ending resources to provide more than what we need, and we learn the theory of learned helpfulness. I believe that many of us in this place are feeling as though we've, we're being electrically shocked. We're being bombarded by loud sounds and noises. Even just this past week and everything that's gone on with Pastor Mike, living life is difficult. And maybe some of us aren't feeling that right now, but we've felt it before, and we certainly know that we'll probably feel like that again. But friends, there's a lever in the room. There's a button in the room. There's a half wall in the room. The helper, the presence of God is with us, and we need to become people who recognize this and respond. We need to be people who, like this woman, hear that Jesus is coming. She's waited 12 years but when she heard he was coming, she knew. She knew the risk and she went anyway. She responded and now her story is written in history. We can be people who watch and listen, people who are actively ready in our waiting so that when Jesus shows up, when Jesus comes, we respond no matter what. Now, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a, a podcast on resilient leadership. And the podcast prompted me to purchase the U.S. Army Survival Guide, which is kind of funny. In fact, somebody on our staff saw it was like, who bought the U.S. Army Survival Guide? And I was like, oh, that was just me. <clears throat> but this is what it says. The U.S. Army Survival Guide says this. Modern combat increases the likelihood of becoming isolated. You can remain alive anywhere in the world when you keep your wits. This is a major lesson in survival. It is your determination and your ability to make nature work for you that are the deciding factor. The experiences of hundreds of servicemen isolated during World War II and the Korean combat prove that survival is largely a matter of mental outlook with the will to survive being the deciding factor. Remember this key word, survival, and I'm not gonna read all of these, but it says this, S. Size up the situation. U, undue haste makes waste. R, remember where you are. V, vanquish fear and panic. Fear is normal 
and necessary. It gives you an extra shot of energy just when you need it. Learn to recognize it and control it. I, improvise. You can always find something to improve the situation. Figure out what you need, take stock of what you have, and then improvise. V, value living. Hope and plan for escape. Reduce your fear and make your chances for survival better. The woman with the issue of blood knew her situation. She knew what was going on, and she knew that nothing natural was going to help her. But she didn't wait. She didn't sit back and say, you know, I'll just wait till the next time Jesus comes to town. She vanquishes her fear. She recognizes it, and she responds. She had watched. She had listened. She thought about it. She believed, and she responded. Friends, if the military of the free world utilizes these survival skills, how much more do the people of God need to become people who watch and people who listen and people who set our minds on him and respond when he shows up in town? Would you stand with me this morning as we close in prayer? This woman, as I prepared for this message, has been on my heart in so many ways, for so many reasons. But what I love about her story is that in the midst of this tremendous health situation, in the midst of being tremendously weak, tremendously frail, tremendously sick, she knows that what she needs is just one small touch from the Savior. She knows that no matter what, no matter what Levitical law tells us, no matter what she's told she's supposed to do, that she has to push her way through the crowd and she's willing to touch whomever and whatever to get there. And because she risks, Jesus calls her daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, you showed up. Daughter, live your life in peace. Friends, I know the situations in this room vary. I know that people are really going through it right now. I know there's a lot of just yucky things going on. But you have a button. You have a lever. You have a half wall. You have the presence of God in the room who calls you son, who calls you daughter, who says that your faith can heal you. The Father is asking us to respond today to watch and to listen to where and how he is moving. That despite what we see, despite what the rules tell us, despite what we're supposed to do, that our minds are so fixated on the truth of who we know he is. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I thank you for welcoming us with open arms that you call us to bravely respond to where you show up. Father, we wanna be people who recognize when you walk into the room. We don't wanna lay down and cower as the dogs and the humans in group three. Father, we want to respond. Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We give you our minds. We give you access to move in our lives. And we say that we will respond no matter what. Thank you for sending the helper. Thank you for sending the healer. Thank you that we are never alone, 
that we have an advocate that works on our behalf, who is always with us despite the circumstances, despite what we see, who is always with us and who prompts us to respond to you when you walk in the room. So we tune our attention to you. We tune our eyes and our ears to you. We say that you are the one who heals. You are the one who loves. You are the one who accepts and we will respond to you. We give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.